Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Hey, Charles Eisenstein here. I'm really happy to bring to you this recording of a conversation between me and Rupert Sheldrake, who's one of my favorite renegade scientists, and as it happens, the number one target of the defenders of scientific orthodoxy. He hardly needs an introduction. He's so infamous or famous. Uh, he's written tons of books. He's got a PhD in biochemistry from Cambridge, making it hard to dismiss him as a New Age airhead. His refinement of thought and the power of his intellect will become apparent to you if it's not already through this conversation. And I really, I just really appreciate and honor him for his pioneering role kind of as an elder in the liberating of science from certain metaphysical dogmas, reductionism, mechanistic materialism, and so forth. He practices the scientific method in his research in its original and humble spirit. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Yeah, so we um, decided I would kind of open it. So the, the overall theme here is the turning of the age. And that is a transition that we, I don't know, probably every, every generation has thought that they are in a turning of the age. I mean, I could see how in the late 19th century it must have seemed that way as technology revolutionized life in a, in a way that, that I think is, was unprecedented and is still has not been repeated. But anyway, I see a transition happening in every area of our civilization and every institution, and that these transitions all share something in common. So this, these, th this weekend, we're going to be looking at a few of those areas, starting here with science. And I think what is happening today in science is more than just a classic paradigm shift. But it's a constellation of paradigm shifts that all share something in common. And it might be hard to pinpoint exactly what that is if you're looking at, like, what, what does, say, uh, morphic resonance have in common with, I don't know, to pick one of my favorites, water intelligence or plant intelligence or uh, the biotic pump theory of uh, rainfall. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these, but there's in every field of science, there are uh, paradigm shifts happening. And what I've discovered is that they share something really important in common. So we're going to talk about some of this stuff, starting maybe with exploring what even is science, because the very boundaries of science are being challenged today. A lot of what Rupert Sheldrake does is very controversial and triggering, we could say, if I may use that word, to people who are highly invested in 
uh, an orthodox worldview. So why is it so triggering? Why is it more triggering than some other dissident view that's nonetheless considered an acceptable dissent? I think why it's triggering is that it calls into question uh, the foundations of science. And to me, that has to do with the metaphysical assumptions that are unexamined, that are taken for granted, that form the basis of our mythology. And I call it a mythology. We don't understand really what a mythology is for the most part. We think that it's kind of these fanciful stories about gods and goddesses and that we have transcended mythology. We no longer have mythology. Instead, we have objective science. But when you look at the institutions of science through um, a mythologist's lens, you see that they bear the, the narratives of science and the institutions of science and the hierarchy of science and all of these things bear a very close resemblance to a religion. So these metaphysical assumptions underneath science include things like objectivity, include things like the way to understand the reality of something is to break it down into its smallest possible parts. This is core to the way science was first articulated as a field by people like Galileo and David Hume. Galileo, for example, said, only the measurable is real and called these things primary qualities. These are the real things, distance, uh, mass, things like that, things that you could uh, contain in a number. And the ambition of science became to expand the realm of the measurable until everything could be reduced to a number, including even consciousness, including life, including emotions, including love. And ambition said that once you can uh, reduce it to a set of data, here's what love really is. It is a biochemical cascade in the brain that has this, 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 and this characteristic. And if it doesn't meet these criteria, then it isn't love. And if it does, then it is love. And we can hook you up and test whether you really love. Like that would be a scientific uh, account of love. So that was the ambition to expand the realm of quantity of the primary qualities <clears throat> until there was nothing left. So David Hume, and I'm going to just leave you with this quote, Rupert, and see, see what you have to say so far. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got this morning thing here. Um, so David Hume said, he wrote somewhere, uh, does it contain abstract reasoning about quantity and number? No. Does it contain experimental, something about experimental matters of fact and evidence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it contains nothing but sophistry and, and illusion. <laughs> Commit it then to the flames. Hmm. So what, is, what does that stimulate in you? Um, well, um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I would have started from Hume, but uh, Hume's a kind of ambiguous figure because, after all, he showed that causation is not out there in the world, and he led to a kind of inward turning where we see that the way that we understand nature depends on our minds. And, you know, he affected Immanuel Kant, and Kant's in philosophy is that 
the way we see the world is through the lens of our own minds, through time, space, and causality. We impose those on any vision of nature that we have. They're not necessarily out there, but they're the only way we can understand it. Now, although Kant's a very influential philosopher, and although it's very relevant to science, scientists basically have ignored Kant and Hume, um, because they just assume there is causality, and that time, space, and causality are out there in the world. I mean, this philosophical revolution had very little effect Mm -hmm. on the kind of naive realism on which science is based. Um, So even today, Hume and Kant would seem tremendously sophisticated. You know, it's only in quantum theory where people began to say, well, the observations need an observer, and the observers... A lot of people think this is very profound in quantum theory when they say observations need observers, and observers are conscious, and people say quantum theory has brought consciousness into science. Um, Well, Arthur Schopenhauer pointed out in about 1810 that all observations need observers, and therefore science can't possibly function without the minds of scientists. So it's not really a new insight, and it's not really mm-hmm. anything specifically to do with quantum theory. Uh, I think what it points to is the way that the sciences have separated off consciousness, which was the realm of secondary qualities. Galileo said that things like smell and taste and color um, are not real quantities in nature because they're in our minds, and by which he meant really inside our brains. Kepler did the same. I mean, it's right at the beginning of the 17th century, as you pointed out, that this separation occurred. Kepler was the first person to figure out how the lens creates images in the eye, the inverted images on the retina. And it was partly based on the camera obscura, partly based on the study of lenses, Mm -hmm. because they were making telescopes at that time. People had been making spectacle lenses for even in the Middle Ages. So he worked out what the lens does and he then worked out there's these two little inverted images on the retina. So then Kepler deals with the question, well, why is it that we don't see two little images of the world upside down? We see one image of the world the right way up. And he said, all of that must happen inside the brain, and I leave that to others to work out. So although he's often claimed that he's explained vision in terms of two inverted images on the retina, It hasn't really explained vision in the sense that, first of all, we're conscious of what we see, and secondly, these two little inverted images are somehow blended together by our minds to produce a right-way-up image. And, in fact, we don't experience it as being on the retina, but we experience it as being out there. Now, that problem has not been solved since Kepler. So I think really what's happened is everything to do with consciousness was sort of pushed off into another realm. And... In the 17th century, consciousness vaguely came under the heading of spirit. And spirit, it was a dualistic system they had. They had a system where matter is quantitative and science deals with it. And spirit is the realm of religion, subjectivity, and is not part of science. It's a separate realm. And so it remained till the 19th century. People were perfectly happy having these two separate realms. Um, until people started saying, we don't want two realms, we just want one. And then some people said, well, it's all spirit, and you get kind of idealistic philosophies, which had a big influence in the 19th century. It's hard for us to remember that much of 19th century German and even British philosophy was idealist. 
that the world is like a great idea. The world is made of consciousness. Matter is a kind of dumbed-down consciousness. Here in England, Bradley, who was one of the greatest, most influential philosophers around the turn of the 20th century, was an idealist. And this was taught in our main universities. It's so hard for us to remember that, because the turn to materialism has been so extreme. Um, uh, because in the 19th century, the other school of thought that said it's all one thing, not two things, were the materialists. They said, well, it's, spirit doesn't exist, it's all matter. Anyone who thought spirit existed thought that God and the angels and other kinds of spirit were possible. But if you say spirit doesn't exist, then God, angels, and the whole of the spiritual and religious realm is swept away at one stroke, and you'll, everything's collapsed down consciousness into the brain and then it's all just inside the head. And I think that's um, where we are today, because most educated people have been brought up to believe that science, the secular worldview, secular humanism, science and reason, is usually identified with materialism, which means it's all just inside the head. And so I find that's the, the really big division in, in our modern culture, and that seems to be what triggers people, because I sometimes wonder why when I do research, say, on telephone telepathy, you know, how is it that people know who's calling on the phone before they answer it? I've done so many experiments that show this is real. It's been dismissed for a century as just coincidence. People think of others all the time. Then if they ring, they imagine it's telepathy and just forget the millions of times they're wrong. That's the standard armchair argument. The experimental data show that it's way above chance, people's ability to guess who's calling that triggers off incredibly passionate responses. And there are whole groups of organized skeptics <laughs> who jo whose job it is to oppose this kind of research. And they're very, very successful. In America, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which publishes the Skeptical Inquirer magazine, <laughs> it has something like 70,000 subscribers. And Michael Shermer, who writes the skeptic column in Scientific American, is editor of The Skeptic magazine, magazine, is chairman of The Skeptic Society. His magazine sells about 50,000. And they go around campuses giving talks to undergraduates. They're tireless in their efforts to control the media. As soon as anyone in the media gives a positive report about research on telepathy, they ring the editor and they say, you know, your journalists have got this wrong. These people are frauds and charlatans. There's no scientific credibility for this. They've been incredibly successful. So much so that in America, there's something over 100,000 paid-up, card-carrying skeptics, plus lots of supporters. And the number of full-time researchers in parapsychology is now about two and a half. So they're outnumbered tens of thousands to one by the skeptics. Um, and they feel passionately about this. There's plenty of evidence for telepathy, and yet it's their job to try and prove it doesn't exist. Whereas if in cosmology someone comes along and says, well, we just live in one of trillions, of quadrillions, zillions of parallel universes, the multiverse, for which there's not a shred of evidence, they say, yeah, okay, this is an exciting idea, the multiverse. <laughs> they no. say, well, we can't figure out how planets move in galaxies, so there must be all this extra matter, dark matter, five times as much as regular matter. Oh yeah, no problem, dark matter. Then the universe is expanding much more than we thought. Well, let's have some dark energy. Now 96% of reality is dark matter and dark energy, which we know nothing whatever about. Right, it only exists to make the equations work. They exist yeah. to make the equations work. They have no problem with that. Right. Uh, 
because it doesn't challenge <coughs> the idea that consciousness is somehow primary. These are, this is still in the realm of equations. Okay, so I want to I want to uh, voice a maybe you could call it a monist uh, alternative to a separate realm of spirit and matter that is also very triggering to the guardians of the materialist orthodoxy. Mm. So, so, so I can kind of see where they're coming from, the materialists, because things that were originally called secondary qualities by Galileo, things like uh, color or, or odor, things like that, have indeed succumbed to the quantitative program. For example, odors can be described in terms of receptor sites and, and you know, molecules, aromatic chemicals diffusing in the air and so on and so forth. And there are still certainly controversies in the dominant theories of olfaction, but at least you can look at the science and you can say, yeah, you know, we've kind of explained that or we're on the way to explaining that. Uh, same thing with colors, same thing to some extent with vision and even with emotions, you know, there's all kinds of stuff about, I don't, I mean, I don't know that much about it actually, but I can quote some words that sound, that make it sound like I know a lot about it, you know, neuropeptides and things like that. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, it looks, it, it, you can quite easily convince yourself that the program of converting everything into primary qualities is making progress. And that the areas that we can't explain, that's just because we haven't gotten there yet. But at the same time, something really interesting to me is happening, which is that the qualities that have been exported onto spirit and therefore claimed not to exist, contains nothing but sophistry and illusion. These qualities are sneaking back into matter. And maybe the, because just as human beings experiencing the world, we're unsatisfied with the reductionistic dismissal of parts of life that we know to be very real. So if we accept the word of science that, that they do not exist in matter, then of course we have to posit a, a world of spirit. I was reading a, a book called The Ocean is Alive by a marine biologist. And he was describing a, a magical encounter that he had with, I believe it was a very large uh, shark. It might have been a basking shark or something like that. And, uh, and he was face to face with it and looking it right in the eye. And the shark then somehow summoned one of its grooming fish like these fish that live on the sharks. And the, the, this fish came over and cleaned off the eye uh, that was looking at the scientist. And he's like, how did that fish know to clean off the right eye? It seems like telepathy. But to say, well, that was telepathy also pushes aside like, what if they actually communicate in a very nuanced, detailed way? Like, what if there's some either subtle body motion or uh, electromagnetic signal 
or perhaps some sense that we don't even know about that the fish use to communicate with the other fish, that essentially means that they have an intelligence or even um, some kind of linguistic capacity, some way of representing things like which part of the body, which side of the body, uh, what do I need right now? So what if what's fundamental is communication and it can, and the vehicle of that communication could be something that we recognize or something that we do not yet recognize. Uh, another example is that I've looked into a lot is the ability of water to store and transmit information. So when we, and so water is everywhere and it's in everything. And if every drop of water contains some kind of imprint from everything that it's touched, that is a global means of communication that has been completely unrecognized. You can't say that it's non-material, yet it has these properties of spirit, like that it's everywhere and it links everything. And it's almost like the Akashic records, you know, the water it falls on the earth, it, it, it soaks up all of the information that's available. Uh, perhaps even the prayers that you give to water change the structure of that water. And then it soaks into the earth and everything that the earth has absorbed. And then it goes underground for a while and it's dormant. And then it comes up as a spring. And then it flows, flow, th flows across the land and all of the flowers and all of the trees and the leaves, they imprint the water too. So here's, a, you could say that it doesn't require an external spiritual realm, but the cost to the reductionist materialist is that you have to then accept that everything is alive, everything is intelligent, and you could even say God is everywhere. So you've brought spirit back into matter. Well, I agree with that approach. I mean, I'm not a dualist. I don't think that the spiritual realm is totally separate from the material. My own interpretation of things like telepathy is in terms of fields, morphic fields of social mm -hmm. groups. Fields are extended. The point about fields is that they've taken us beyond old-style materialism. Starting in at the 1840s with Faraday, who first introduced the field concept. Mm -hmm. We have this idea, it was first with electric and magnetic fields, um, that they spread out beyond the material body. I mean, everyone has always known that magnets had an effect at a distance and through an invisible influence. And the Greeks thought that this was because of the soul of the magnet. They had the idea of the soul is the body is within the soul. Each living thing is surrounded by a soul, which is an organized structure that shapes the body. Aristotle said the soul is the form of the body. And so a magnet had a soul. And the great Gilbert, who came up with the modern theory of magnetism in his book in 1600, when he discovered that the Earth is a magnet, that compass needles point towards the north magnetic pole of the Earth, that was a big discovery. And he called it the soul of the Earth. So basically what happened was that the old view had souls as they had a threefold division. They had body, soul, and spirit. What Descartes and the 17th century uh, scientific revolution did was got rid of souls, leaving just body and spirit. Mm -hmm. So you had a sharp dualism, whereas before there was this intermediate level of extended in space organizing principles, which were not yet just the hard stuff of matter, but went beyond matter. 
And what happened really through Faraday was that the field theory uh, replaced the soul theory for electric and electric uh, magnets and electric phenomena. Then with Einstein, the, the old view was the universe has a soul that keeps the stars in the right places, the anima mundi, the soul of the universe or soul of the world. That was abolished in the 17th century, but then Einstein introduced the universal gravitational field, the field that organizes all things. And in biology, in the 1920s, following that general trend, a number of biologists said, OK, well, living organisms are organized by morphogenetic fields, fields that shape the coming into being of form of plants and animals. These are within and around the organisms. I've extended that in the idea of morphic fields to cover not just growth of animals and plants, but the organization of social groups like flocks of birds. When telepathy occurs, it occurs between closely bonded organisms, and I think the fields were stretches when they move apart, like mm -hmm. a kind of invisible elastic band. So I think that through these field theories, and a general trend in science since the mid-19th century, uh, we now have a situation where in quantum physics, and in physics in general, the visible is explained in terms of the invisible. Um, matter has been dissolved from hard, solid stuff right. into vibratory patterns of, of energy, vibrations within fields, and electrons of vibration in an electron field, a protons of vibration in a proton field. And these fields are extended in space, but also in time, because vibrations take time, uh, so you can't have a vibration at an instant. Um, so therefore, um, even the simplest material particles are spread out in space and time with a future and a past. So this goes a long way towards bringing back, as it were, the soul into nature. And I think that current panpsychists, you know, this is, it's becoming increasingly fashionable in science to become, and philosophy to become panpsychist. Mm -hmm. In other words, say there's a kind of mind or psyche or soul. Literally, panpsychism means soul everywhere. Soul is throughout nature. So I think that level is actually becoming increasingly respectable and is becoming part of science. I, I often hear you inveigh against materialist science, but it sounds like, it doesn't sound like you're, in a way, it doesn't sound like you're not a materialist. Well, it depends what you mean by matter, you see. And, mm -hmm. and the, if the whole point of mechanistic materialism, starting in the 17th century, Mechanistic science was to strip matter down from... It was deliberately to expel the idea of the soul from the universe. That was the 70, Before the right. 17th century, in the medieval universities, Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas were the standard curriculum, and which taught that all nature is alive, the earth is alive, the stars are alive, animals and plants are alive, animals have souls, that's why they're called animals, anima, soul. This was the standard doctrine. They were rebelling against that and saying, no, these souls are all imaginary, they don't exist. Matter is just stuff that's mm -hmm. pushed around by external forces. It has no organizing capacity of its own. Yeah. So what's happened, that was, and then materialism took this mechanistic view and stripped away the dualistic residues of the spirit until you just got hard material stuff. Now, the kind of materialism that is a panpsychist view, and my view um, is, is that it's closer to the uh, St. Thomas Aquinas than it is to Galileo and Kepler, and it's exactly what they were rejecting. And so, although some of these panpsychist philosophers like Galen Strawson and Thomas Nagel 
mm-hmm. still consider themselves materialists. Yeah. What they've done is expanded the definition of materialism to something that goes back to a pre-mechanistic revolution view. So it's now intensely ambiguous. Yes. Um, and I would say that to call it materialism, uh, you can, you can, if you like, by calling it an expanded or modified materialism, you can make it seem respectable and acceptable within the modern intellectual realm of discourse. Right. But it's, it, it's, they're on a slippery slope. And I'm trying to push them down the slippery slope by making it even slippier, slippier. Right. Because if they say, okay, the electron has some level or aspect of mind, and there's something like informational transfer in living organisms and stuff, I've recently been concentrating on the sun and say, well, okay, if this applies to electrons, it must apply to the sun. So the sun's conscious and the sun's a living being, and we're within the field of the sun. The whole solar system is, as it were, the body of the sun. And if the sun has a mind, then what about the galaxy? Why not? If panpsychism, if every organizing system has a psyche, then the galaxy has one. Mm-hmm. And if the galaxy has one, why not the whole cosmos? Then if you have a mind of the entire cosmos, we're all within that mind of the cosmos, then is that mind God? Is it not God? You get into a realm of debate where, you know, between pantheism and... Uh, you know, panentheism, and we're now in a realm of theological debate. Yeah. Um, and so this attempt to sort of expand materialism in a few easy stages brings us into a realm of traditional, or at least new, a new kind of theology. Yeah. Yeah, so, so really the problem is the stripping down of matter, not the imagining of an extra material realm. And the stripping down of matter, I want to say, has uh, economic and political and ecological consequences. Because when you strip away everything that could make other beings or the material world sacred, then you've given yourself license to exploit it and destroy it. Because after all, it's just a bunch of stuff. So when you make animals, for example, into these kind of meat machines, these kind of you know genetically programmed mechanical robots, then there's no reason not to mistreat them any more than it would be a bad idea to mistreat a brick. You know, like, oh, how could you break that brick? What a horrible thing you've done. That brick must really, must really hurt to get broken. You know, we think that, that that would be ridiculous. And if an animal is just a more complicated brick, then the same thing would go for an animal. So then we have the animal rights movement that says that's recognizing no animals are not just machines, but they have an experience of being. They have mm. a subjectivity. They have intelligence. They have all of these qualities that we were that we have stripped away from matter. And then you go into the area of of plant consciousness and soil consciousness, where people are now pointing out that actually the mycorrhizal networks in soil uh, are as complicated or more complicated than brain tissue. Uh, and they even have dopamine and serotonin, and they can perform all of the functions that a brain can perform. And why have we seen them as just this kind of inert biochemical stew? Why is it? Is that really just an act of imperialism, an act of hegemony, an act that enables the exploitation of the world. And then you could even extend it to a brick or to the sky or to the sun or to the moon. And then you get into 
it's not just a, a new theology, but it's also a very ancient theology because every culture that's ever been on this earth up until four or 500 years ago affirmed and believed that all things are alive. Every culture, of course, the sun is alive. It was, it, it was obvious to them, all things are alive. All things are conscious. All things must be treated with respect. So I think that, that you could look at, at the um, kind of the scientific uh, stripping away of spiritual qualities from matter as the enabler of economic and ecological exploitation. But you could also look at it the other way around, that when the commodity economy <laughs> arose, made it much more natural to think of the world as merely a bunch of stuff. When the money economy took over and began encouraging us to see things as mere repositories of value, valuable only for their instrumental utility, then a scientific view that affirmed that became much more natural. And, and, and you know, we live in a commodity economy today where, where everything has been rendered uh, standard and in a sense has the soul stripped out of uh, the uniqueness and the relatedness. I think soul is very deeply linked to uniqueness and relatedness. When I see you as a unique being, then I see you as a sacred being. But if I put you in a category, then you become the same as all the other members of the category. And that's what racism is. You know, you put someone in a category and then you dehumanize them. So, when we, when we have an economic system that strips the uniqueness and disembeds things from the relatedness, you know, extracts them from somewhere far away and turns them into an identical generic commodity, then a scientific worldview that affirms that becomes much more natural. So that's why, that's why this weekend, you know, we're bringing together these different fields. This is one of the deep connections between the economic revolution that needs to happen in the scientific revolution mm. that's going on today. Yeah, I quite agree. I mean, I think that the commodification of things and this abstraction of things through the scientific world obviously fits in this economy and the whole that goes together. It's interesting, though, that this, um, in a sense, the front lines of this paradigm shift are now inside our own minds. And I've got very interested recently in the way in which spiritual practices have now become the new frontier mm -hmm. between these two worldviews. You might think superficially spiritual practices would automatically connect you with the realm of the spirit, but they've become the new frontier in this battle uh, because uh, particularly the two areas that I see as the key areas here are psychedelics and meditation. And I think that's where the frontier is at the moment for, because no longer is it just an abstract argument about, you know, Galileo said this, and Descartes said that, and Hume said that. It becomes an intensely personal issue for a lot of people. Now, millions of people now meditate, owing to the spread of the relaxation response by Howard Benson, you know, who popularized TM and did all that research at Harvard, and it became accepted in American clinics and all over the world. His book, The Relaxation Response, sold millions of copies. It was like number one on the New York Times bestseller list for months and uh, it's standard stuff now that if you meditate you lower your blood pressure lower levels of stress hormones 
you live longer, your immune system works better, you're less depressed, you can now get a prescription for meditation on the National Health Service. <laughs> it's been proved that it works um, as well, uh, or if not better, than antidepressant drugs, and more importantly, it's cheaper. Um, so uh, this, this is now completely mainstream. They're rolling out meditation teachers uh, in large numbers to cope with the demand in the National Health Service to deal with depression. Then, again in the 1970s, Benson's book was 1975, John Kabat-Zinn, who did his work based on Vipassana-type techniques, creating mindfulness meditation. Benson's stuff is more based on, it started with TM, so it's mantra-based, whereas mindfulness is more breath-based or general awareness-based. This, again, is now, there's millions of people doing this. Now, What's going on? It's portrayed as completely acceptable and normal and healthy and, you know, recommended by, in Britain, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence and National Health Service. Many doctors and clinics teach it because uh, it's good for you. And then the brain scans show that what it does is reduces the default mode network, the bit of the brain that's concerned with self-reflection, rumination, anxiety, worry. It reduces all this. And this is good for you, and that's one of the reasons. And it leads to changes in brain structure. There's a huge literature. It's completely acceptable scientifically. But what's really going on? You see, the cultures from which this meditation, these meditation techniques were derived, which is all religious traditions, had forms of it, believed that through meditation, that the human mind was contacting or becoming linked to the greater mind, which is the base of all being of the whole universe. The Hindus their basic insight in the Upanishads is that Atman is Brahman, our inner conscious world, is an aspect of the ultimate consciousness of reality. And the Buddhist world, where it's uh, access to nirvana, nirvana is not just seen as a brain state. Nirvana is a totally transpersonal realm of conscious being with the end of all desire and, mm -hmm. and, and so on. And in the Christian meditative tradition that was practiced in monasteries in the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, and it became a popular thing in Russia, you know, the Jesus Prayer was a popular thing peasants did. And the Rosary um, in ca the Catholic world is a kind of repetitive mantra-like meditative practice with rosary beads. People were contacting God through meditation. In the Sufi world, meditative practices were a way of contacting the mind of God. So these Modern meditation taught in this medical context has come out of a context where the point of it is to go beyond yourself, whereas it's easily interpreted as being something that's just happening inside your brain. Right. And at the moment, I'm reading a fascinating book. Uh, you've probably read it, Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. Because mm. here's one of the most militant atheists of the modern world, author of The End of Faith, Letter to a Christian Nation, and so on, who, as he reveals in his book, I mean, I knew he'd meditated, but until I read this book, I haven't quite finished it yet, he reveals that he actually spent two years in India. He's been on dozens of meditation retreats. He's spent 10 hours a day meditating for weeks on end. This was before he became a militant atheist. He dropped out of college because he found the science of the scientific view of the mind too inadequate, went to India, joined ashrams, had Buddhist teachers, then underwent a Zogchen initiation, which he regards as the ultimate in meditation. And Sam Harris, far from saying, this is something that links me to something beyond the human realm, for him, this is all in the brain. 
And, you know, the fact that the highest levels of spiritual insight, which he thinks is Zogchen meditation, can occur just in the brain on the basis of regular science. He uses a stick to beat every religious tradition with, including the Buddhist one. For him, all religions are bad. And uh, some are worse than others. The worst of all, a Judaic, uh, Judea, he's a Jew. Jews, uh, Christians, and, and Muslims are the very worst. But Buddhists are the best because they're the easiest to turn into a kind of secular, uh, secularized form. So he says the Dalai Lama is great, except if only he'd let go of his superstitious beliefs in rebirth and so on. And his own Zogchen teachers, if only they'd let go of their silly beliefs in the rainbow body and things that are fundamental to their tradition. So it's very, very interesting that that's happening. And similarly, parallel in the realm of psychedelics, um, because psychedelics are chemical molecules, you know, LSD and mm -hmm. so on, we can identify the molecules, you can identify receptors in the brain, you can measure with brain scans which bits of the brain change. Some people who take psychedelics, like Sam Harris, are militant atheists. Other people who take them uh, see this as opening a window to a realm of the spirit, and the traditions in which they've been taken, where they have been traditional, like in ayahuasca, or cannabis for that matter, which in India is Shiva's holy plant, and is when sadhus smoke it, they start with an invocation to Shiva before they take a puff on their chillum. These psychedelics were seen traditionally as a way of opening the mind to these other realms, but for modern atheists, they say, yes, these give spiritual insights, they give these visionary states, but it's all in the brain, it just proves our point. <laughs> and so, um, for me, it seems that the biggest division really is between those of us who think that consciousness is something greater than human brains, um, and possibly animal brains as well, who see consciousness as fundamental in the universe, um, which, as you said, includes practically every religion, every shamanic tradition, every human tradition, except for a, a tiny handful of atheists in the ancient world and post-19th century secular atheists today. Mm -hmm. Apart from them, everyone's seen it that way. But the, a, the modern atheist world has, even in its more liberal forms, taking psychedelics and doing Zogchen meditation, has somehow managed to slice that off and reduce it to brain physiology. Right. So if you wanted to unify um, your view with Sam Harris's view, there would, he, would have to, he would have to accept that there is some... Uh, intimate connection between his brain state and the state of the cosmos. That there is some way that what's happening, I don't know, on Jupiter is also somehow happening in his brain. And the currently accepted four forces of physics don't allow that to happen. Because the only way that the outer world interacts with the inner world in conventional science is through the recognized senses of sight, hearing, touch, etc. And how do those work? Well, there's a pretty clear uh, account of how those work. What could influence them and what couldn't? So the song of the whales in the Pacific Ocean that uh, Sam Harris and most scientists even now would say that that cannot possibly affect what's happening in your brain. And if you take a psychedelic or you go into a deep meditation and you have the experience of, of whale, you know, cetacean mind, whale intelligence, communication from the whales, uh, then that must be 
your, quote, imagination. It must be only happening in your head. It can't actually have anything to do with the whales. That would be the dogma. So to, in order for that to change, the uh, atheist skeptic would have to accept that our understanding, either there are other forces that, that connect um, matter, uh, or that our understanding of the existing forces is very, very incomplete. That, in other words, the world doesn't work the way that we think it works, that causality isn't what we thought it was. That's why any uh, suggestion of an expanded causality, for example, telephone telepathy, is disturbing to them because it promises the possibility of obliterating this um, wall between the inner and the outer. Yes. But I, you see, I think what's interesting is that, that through meditation and psychedelics, a lot of people are now on the cusp of this debate through, because it, as I say, it's no longer just an abstract matter, it's something to interpret their own experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that in the case of Sam Harris, he says he's a monist. In other words, he's not a reductive materialist, he's sort of a sort of panpsychist. But usually when people haven't really thought that through, and when he includes the sun, the cosmos, and the galaxy in his monistic view, uh, it, it, the, the entire cosmos, if the whole cosmos has a mental aspect, then there's a vastly greater mind than all things in, in nature, namely the mind of the whole of nature. And, you know, from I'm, I'm a Christian, and I see God in nature. I think that the, the spirit is in all nature, and all nature is in God. I mean, that's, that's panentheism, that's, that's the name for that view. So, he, if he accepted that there's a kind of God in nature, or at least consciousness in nature, he may not want to use the word God, and that it's a, a consciousness of the whole of nature, ultimately, he would come quite close to, he'd be so far beyond materialism that it, it, you know, it may just be a matter of redefining words for him. But mm -hmm. if, uh, So I think he's on the edge, you see, and um, I was talking recently to a, a British atheist and materialist and meditator, Susan Blackmore, She's always on television in Britain. She's a leading skeptic. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a Dawkins-type atheist. Mm -hmm. And yet, for 20 years, she's been doing Zen meditation. I met her at the Royal Society Symposium on LSD. There was a, six months ago, the Royal Society had this evening meeting about latest research on LSD. And we were talking afterwards, and, and I said to her, you know, Sue, you all your meditation, you must be pushing the atheist envelope about as far as you can. <laughs> and uh, she said, yes, I'm getting a bit worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> She'd just come back, I think I can reveal, from Brazil, from an ayahuasca retreat. And that had pushed her a great deal further. <laughs> and um, and she, she, I've known her for years, and... Um, you know, at first I found her intensely irritating because she was kind of niggling skeptic. This time, she was a changed woman. I, I, and she, she asked me if I'd taken ayahuasca, and I said yes. And then she was genuinely curious about how I understood my own experiences, and she knows I'm a Christian, and how I integrated this with an idea of God, and, and, and so she was genuinely interested, which she's never been before. <laughs> and so I think that there are quite a lot of people in the kind of dogmatic atheist world, 
they're not going to be convinced by experimental evidence for telepathy in scientific journals. They don't read it. They're, they're deeply prejudiced against it. They're not going to be convinced by abstract arguments on the whole, yes. by your books or mine, or, or so reason. And I think what's really going to change people is reflecting on their own personal experience. And, and I think that it's meditation and psychedelics that are the ones that are now probably the most widely diffused and potentially transformative forms of spiritual experience in the modern world. Yes, I agree. The, the uh, part of the causality that is familiar to us, it's essentially a force-based causality. Mm. It says things change when a force is exerted on a mass. And we translate that into the intellectual realm by thinking that the force of evidence and logic will change someone's mind by overcoming their defenses. Like they just won't be able to resist when you say, but look, here's the evidence and it's proven. And therefore that, then they'll say, oh yes, I surrender. You have overcome me. But everyone knows that that never happens. Whether you're talking about politics, you know, or science or stuff, if the evidence doesn't agree with their beliefs, they'll subject it to intense scrutiny and skepticism. It'll question the provenance of the evidence. They'll question your your motives, you know, your honesty, and so yes. on and so forth. And which journal was that in? And who? Right, right. So like that doesn't work. So what does change people's minds? This is really important because if we're going to have a livable planet, a lot of minds are going to have to change. A lot of actions are going to have to change in behaviors. So this is a question that I've been deeply, deeply studying for a long time. I have this this I had this kind of. Uh, titillating fantasy about the the resolution of the of Rupert Sheldrake camp and the Sam Harris camp, you know, where one day they're like, you know what? It's not that you convinced them or they convinced you, but it's like, we never actually had a disagreement. Um, we were all monists all along and we weren't understanding each other. And now that I've had these experiences, I understand that sacredness in the world doesn't depend on an external divinity imposing it, filling a dead lifeless universe with sacredness, but that the whole thing was sacred all along. And, and this question of extra material influences was a red herring. But I want to say one more thing besides, like I, I very much value meditation and psychedelics. They've had a profound, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for a powerful LSD experience I had when I was 22. And I also believe that ayahuasca in particular, it breaks through the, the defenses of the modern mind, the habits of the modern mind to see the world as a collection of instrumental objects. Hmm. Like experientially, it just, you can't come away from that and still really believe that. You can still entertain that opinion, but you're not going to believe your own opinion really. But I think there's another kind of experience that's, that's also very powerful. Um, and I'm going to take it back again to kind of, you know, the realm of economics and just human relations. Because one of the environmental conditions that enforces the worldview of separation, that holds self separate from world, is living in a hostile world where it does indeed seem that it's composed of a whole bunch of separate competitors, each seeking to maximize their own self-interest, each separate from the others. So for me, experiences of deep intimacy, deep connection, um, 
generosity, gratitude, gift, those kinds of relationships also make the reductionist worldview of, of separation less natural. So I want to add, add that to the mix. So, yeah, well, I think that's a really important point. And I, I think, you know, when you look at I've just been reading Benson's time, reading up at the moment these, all these reports on meditation. And Benson makes the point that the, the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which of course is not to do with sympathy, I mean, it's a rather misnamed, but it's part of the autonomic nervous system, primarily to do with fight or flight. Heartbeat increases, stress hormones are released into the blood, adrenaline, etc. This is activated by not just by real dangers. I mean, we need this if you know if we encounter a grizzly bear or something. Uh, you need to have it, your whole body tuned up, ready to fight or fly. Uh, fly. Yeah. Um, but it's chronically activated through um, the default mode of sort of rumination, worry. Why didn't I do that? You know, all the things that go in the internal chatter in our mind creates a state of chronic anxiety. And anxiety creates the feeling we might be under attack at any moment mm-hmm. and that we've got to watch out for dangers. So there's this constant vigilance, which is the, the fight-or-flight reaction's good when you're in a fight-or-flight situation, but to have it going on all the time because of dangers, competition, you know, as you say, the whole modern world's based on that activates chronically the, this uh, adrenaline sympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system, which is the complementary side of this, uh, leads to lower heartbeat. Um, it's, it, it puts us in a state where we feel at rest and at peace. Under those conditions, we can eat, digest our food, make love, etc. So that's the more relaxed state of being. Right. That's some drugs enhance, which meditation enhances, um, and which indeed many prayers. I'm mean, reading this, some of the evening prayers in the Anglican uh, Evensong service made sense to me. Almighty God, defend us from the fear of our enemies that we may pass mm. our time in rest and quietness. You know, defend us not from our enemies, but from the fear of our enemies mm-hmm. that we may pass our time in rest and quietness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a classic Anglican prayer. And it, when you see it in the light of this slightly reductionist parasympathetic nervous system, it makes it's inducing a state of rest and quietness where we feel more at one, able to cooperate, etc. It's part of our physiological and psychological nature. But just one more point I want to make about monism. You see, I'm actually I don't think of myself as a monist. A monist is where there's just one ultimate reality. Um, I suppose ultimately I do, but um, I myself think that the ultimate reality is Trinitarian. You see, I'm against dualism, not because I think two is too many, uh-huh. but because I think it's too few. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and, and so I don't want to collapse dualism into monism. I want to expand it to a threefold view. And partly in one level that's mind, you know, body, soul and spirit is a kind of Trinitarian view of human nature. But the um, the theological and philosophical basis of this is a wonderful book by David Bentley Hart called The Experience of God Being Consciousness Bliss. I think he's one of the best of modern theologians. He's American, he's Greek Orthodox by uh, persuasion. 
Um, but what he shows is that all the main religions have much more in common than that the divides them. And all of them have at their heart a view of the way God works in terms of a threefold conception. In Hinduism, it's Satchitananda. Is the, the, that's the name given to the ultimate nature of consciousness or being. Sat is being, Chit is consciousness or knowledge or mind or logos, and Ananda is joy hmm. and or bliss. And the, so what it's saying is the ultimate nature of the divine mind is being, the ground of being, which is the very source of all being in the universe. And from this traditional point of view, God sustains all things in being from moment to moment. God doesn't just create a universe at the Big, at the big Bang, design the laws of nature, press the start button and then retire, which is <laughs> the view of God that most atheists don't believe in, and neither do I. Uh, uh, God is, creates the universe from moment to moment by upholding the very being of all things. And that means that when we contemplate, say, a plant or a flower, um, instead of abstracting it, as you were saying, but we look at the individual being of something, then God is reflected in that through the very fact it has being. And the fact it has form, um, you know, flower has form, a plant has form, order, structure, uh, comes from the fact it reflects this aspect of knowledge or mind or logos or order or form, which is part of the mind of God. And all things strive to reach their own perfection. A plant strives to reach its mature form, an animal strives to reach its mature mm. form, and then to build a bird to build its nest and to raise its young. Uh, because when things reach their perfection, reach the end or goal of their striving, however temporarily, they contact the mind of God and have an opening into that bliss, which is the permanent state of God's mind. So if through meditation you have a state of bliss, you're op opening into that aspect of God's mind. If through an orgasm you have a moment of bliss, that's because temporarily this little sort of portal into the divine bliss opens and floods into you. Um, that if in a psychedelic experience you have a blissful experience, that this uh, source of all this bliss is in the divine mind which is everywhere, um, rather than the bliss being triggered off by a release of dopamine or serotonin or the suppression of certain nerve endings or uh, uptake right. inhibitors or whatever. Or maybe not rather, but maybe those processes are, are the vehicle of of the divine bliss. through opening yes which one is primary is the question you know? well i mean on, on this view the divine bliss is primary because it's been around in in the universe as part of the motivating force for animals and plants through long before humans appeared on right. the scene or even brains so the nerve endings is just the way it's instantiated instantiated in yes yeah. like if i look at a tree a particular pattern of changes happen in my brain corresponding to the image of the tree uh, you know in the light from the tree and so on if I open to the being of God or the ultimate or the ultimate consciousness, then changes happen in my brain, but it doesn't prove it's nothing but the brain any right. more than changes in my brain while I look at you prove that you're nothing but my brain. Right. And if a tree has an experience of divine bliss, it wouldn't be mediated through nerve endings because they don't have nerves or brain chemicals because they don't have a brain, but it would be mediated through something else. So, yes, right. it, would, it would be... Um, and expressed, you see, through, I think, my own feeling is that when trees experience this moment of highest bliss, when they're in their moment of highest glory, when they're in full blossom or flower, you know, in the spring, that's when they 
we, you know, when the flowers on, on a plant, in a flowering plant, are an expression of beauty, which the plant has no eye, but the evolution of the beauty of flowers, the beauty of their shapes, their colours, their smells, and so forth, has taken place in a co-evolution with the eyes of animals. As Darwin once said, before there was a fl- an eye to see it, there could have been no flower. Um, that they're a dialogue with the animal realm and with animal minds. And so the very existence of flowers and fruits on plants is a dialogue with the animal realm. And um, the, the fact that animals can perceive beauty, they perceive it in flowers. I mean, insects have been looking at flowers long before humans appeared on the scene. And they, they, many insects and other animals are very beautiful, you know, butterflies, you know, beetles with their iridescent, iridescent case, uh, wing cases, you know, there are beautiful fish, peacock tails and feathers. Of course, the reductionist view would explain those things away as, you know, mating displays or warning systems or... But it begs you know. the question, you see, Darwin said they're a matter of sexual selection. You know, that a peacock's tail right. enables the peacock with the most beautiful tail to get the girl. Um, well... Yes, but it, you see, it begs the question as, as to why the female peacocks find it beautiful. You see, it no doubt serves a mating function, but it presupposes a sense of beauty in the mates. Well, I mean, there's, like, I can, I mean, as you probably know, like, one of the, I mean, I hesitate to play devil's advocate because I don't really believe it, but, um, <laughs> you know, like, the, the, there's a whole theory that, extravagant displays like that also show that I am so fit that I can afford to waste energy on this extravagant display and I can afford to have a gigantic tail that gets in the way because I'm so otherwise fit that I mean there's there oh yes that would apply to and antlers on the deer in the park right 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 um that's an extravagant display but that's not the all there is to it you see because if you look say peacock butterflies or monarch butterflies they, they have extravagant displays, but it costs no more energy to have beautiful wings than yeah. to have drab brown wings. And so it's in that case, the beauty isn't to do with extravagance or proof of fitness. Um, but again... I, I was mean, just giving that as an example of one of the ways that it's, that it's explained away. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's every way of trying to explain all this away in terms of a drab utilitarian philosophy. Right. Everything's got to have a use. Um, what's right. the use of it? The only thing is it's got to have some uh, immediate practical use. That's one of the sides of this, this coin of this secularist commodification of, of, of the world right. that you were talking That's about. That's right. It's reductionist not only in the sense of an explanatory strategy, but it's also reductionist in terms of reducing the the beauty and wonder and awe of existence. Exactly. So instead of enjoying flowers when you walk around a garden, looking at these beautiful flowers, the thought that crosses your mind, oh, these are nothing but display systems for achieving fertilization and the spread of selfish (laughs) genes. Yeah. Um, You know, they're just the selfish genes way of getting pollen spread and stuff. And so that gets to the question of why do people believe certain things? Because that way of seeing and that experience of being in a garden is part of a psychological state of being that would make sense if you have experienced in your life the crushing of your spirit, if you've experienced the, the betrayal of your urgings to toward beauty or toward 
like if, you, if, if when you were a child, for example, and you were in a state of wonder and awe, and that got dismissed or um, devalued, and your experience of your own beauty and magnificence and potential and will to fulfill your per perfect function in the mind of God was crushed in some way, as many of us experienced maybe in school, then that kind of drab utilitarian worldview fleshes out that state of being. Yes, I think that's a really important point. There's something about, because after all, we have the paradoxical situation that children in our society are encouraged to be animistic. Mm -hmm. And that children's stories, you know, they're given hundreds of sort of stuffed animals so they can yeah. have these totemic animals in their crib. But that's seen as like a child's realm. That's right. Then and you then grow they have, Then they have all these children's stories. I mean, the one I like most was Rupert Bear, because here's this talking bear that has adventures. Um, you know, there are lots of children's stories about talking animals. Beatrix Potter's book, you know, Peter Rabbit and so mm -hmm. on. So, and then even children's books like J.K. Rowling's, the Harry Potter thing, even though they're a bit older, those are teenagers, but they're in a world where the whole appeal of it is partly, at one level, a sort of English boarding school story. Yeah. But on, at another level, it's a world where there's the sort of magic is preserved and actually taught in a school, mm -hmm. um, which must be a, an amazing thought for most children, since it's so unmagical the way most schools operate. Um, that in children's literature, there's, we actually encourage children to have this. But then, at a certain age, they're told, you know, of course Santa Claus doesn't exist, of course the Tooth Fairy doesn't exist. And then, almost going along with that, well, of course God doesn't really exist, and angels don't really exist, and fairies don't really exist. Somehow God and angels and the entire sort of highest insights of humanity uh, through the highest religious and spiritual traditions are all dismissed along with Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. My 20-year-old still believes Santa Claus exists. <laughs> and in a way, because, because you know, at some point, he realized that one man with a beard couldn't go down all those chimneys, and so he confronted me with it. I'm like, well, of course that's not how it works, but to, for something to exist doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be in some place, in only one place at one time. You know, Santa Claus is um, a principle that, that inhabits all of us when we're in that spirit of giving around that time of year when the days get very, very short. So we are all, when we're in that spirit, we're all Santa's helpers. And, and this isn't just a metaphor. Like when you go to the mall and you see the person dressed up as Santa, in certain moments, he is actually the channel of the real Santa. And other times he's just, you know, paid, being paid to do it and not really, not really connecting with that actually existing archetype. Yes, Saint yeah. Nicholas, the yeah. patron saint of children. Yeah. Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas. Yeah. So, I mean, so it is, in, in, yes, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Uh, yeah. But you see, the normal way, the sort of Richard Dawkins rhetoric is that, you know, here's the stupid belief that, you know, right. Kid, all right for young kids, we grow out of it. I think that it would be good to have an actual study, a sort of sociological, psychological study of how, in our culture, all of us, as we grow up, have been educated. They've tried to educate us out of it. I mean, they've succeeded more with some people than others. Um, but the, there is this attempt. Children, I think, naturally have a connection. And many children have spontaneous mystical experiences. Right. And so it's no coincidence that 
quote, primitive cultures who still have animistic or panentheistic beliefs are described or have until recently been described as childlike. Yes. Yes. And indeed, the Victorian view of the evolution of culture was that you start off with primitive, animistic, tribal cultures where they believe the world's alive. These are then replaced by uh, the world religions, which have moved to a higher level of universality and understanding. And then those, in turn, are superseded by the ultimate in human evolution, namely science, uh, which shows that even those are contaminated with animistic and superstitious right. theories. And we move beyond all that to be liberated from this whole of the past of humanity into the light of reason. And that's the standard view of intellectual progress that's dominated universities and the intellectual life of the West since at least the middle of the 19th century. Right. And since that intellectual view of progress uh, is connected to institutions of education and economic development, the same kind of um, imperialism that operates on that intellectual level also ends up being uh, applied on an economic level. So in other words, the same way that we seek to lift the primitives out of ignorance, we also seek to lift them out of their primitive lifestyles of hunting and gathering and subsistence agriculture and um, communing uh, and participating in ecological processes. Yes. You know, we lift them above. I mean, essentially, it's all different ways of lifting them above and abstracting them out of nature. Yes. Get them on smartphones and going to shopping malls. Right. And that's happened all over the world. It's actually happened. It's yeah, it actually happened. Yes. And still is happening. Yes. Yeah, it's called development. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, any. Anyone would like to ask a question? Yeah. Um, I was just sitting in this room and looking around, and I was wondering what's the reductionist view or the gnomic view on art and the inspiration to create? beauty that's not practical. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think that, our, that the uh, transition in our civilization could come down to reorienting toward beauty. You know, like uh, this, this building is so beautiful and I look at the landscape of suburbia, the landscape, the built environment of the last 50 years and, and I'm like, how did it get so ugly? We're supposed to be wealthier than ever before, but, but it's, we almost don't even know how to build buildings this beautiful. And, and so much of beauty has come down to like kind of decoration, like building an ugly building and putting some you know, frills on it to make it look less oppressive. But, but this building has beauty built in from, the very, from its very conception. And it's almost like we don't know how to do that anymore. So, yeah, I mean, you know, beauty is, is maybe the prime example of something that can't be measured, that can't be reduced to a set of objective criteria. So the, as our society has become more uh, oriented toward maximizing a quantity, uh, for example, financial return, mm -hmm. then the unquantitative, the qualitative, the unmeasurable, has been neglected. So we get buildings that are very effective at maximizing floor space per dollar, um, or even energy efficiency per 
square meter, you know, but have also become uglier and uglier and marooned us in a world in which the qualitative seems not even to exist. But the same took into account the principles of sacred geometry, as all mm -hmm. architects of that kind did do very much. The meter yes. was essential, the sacred meter. Yeah, I would say that the, the, the traditional view was that buildings and art were in harmony with the cosmos, and the cosmos was seen as a display of order, of divinely inspired order underlying all of nature, the whole cosmos. The word cosmos means order. Um, and human art <clears throat> somehow fitted in with this divinely inspired order of things. Now, if you get rid of God, if you only have a mechanistic universe with machinery propelled by mathematical laws, um, then you have no basis for something. You have a machine model of buildings. I mean, Le Corbusier famously said a building is a machine for living in. So if you have a mechanistic view of architecture and of, of, um, and of the space that we live in, then it's going to be like that. And if you have a view that there's no spirit, then art is going to be literally uninspired, because inspired art is art infused by the spirit. And all traditional <coughs> arts have been based on the idea that the artist is inspired by a muse or an angel. Um, you know, the muses, the Greeks had nine muses that inspired the different arts. And, you know, in the Christian context, um, the, the inspiration ultimately came from the angels or the Holy Spirit. And people started their works of art with an invocation. Um, you know, Milton begins Paradise Lost with the words, Sing Heavenly Muse, um, as the invocation. And when I lived in South India, um, when I went to concerts, performances of Carnatic music, for example, the, the whole performance would begin with a song invoking the goddess Saraswati, who's the patroness of music, uh, dedicating the entire event to the goddess and to the inspiration, uh, for her inspiration for the musicians. Now, in a secular, atheistic, secular humanist context, there is no higher source of inspiration than humanity itself, um, and uh, that creates a whole artistic world where the, the, these, these other dimensions and sources of inspiration are cut off. Now, some artists are re have always had that contact, some are rediscovering them, um, but I think that's one reason for the change in quality of art, because it's happened in a completely different context. John Ralston Saul points out that art never used to be a matter of self-expression. Yeah. Art never used to be a matter of self-expression. It wasn't considered to be a means of self-expression. No. I mean, if you look at canonical pictures of the Buddha, for example, or in Tanka painting, or in those statues of the Buddha, or icons, medieval icons, um, you don't know the name of the artists for most of them. These were craftsmen, the people who built our great cathedrals. We don't know who they are. The people who carved those wonderful pieces of stone or designed those amazing rose windows or put the stained glass in them. It wasn't an artist being me. It was people serving God. 
through creating a beautiful sacred space. And, and the pictures of the Buddha had to conform to very precise tigsay with you know exact proportions of exactly how the little finger bent and how many wrinkles there mm. were under the chin. Yes, a canon of proportions. And these were all essential. If mm. you were going to do it right, you had to put your, your, your self-expression was nothing subsumed under these canons of proportion. Mm. I have a question for you, actually. Yeah. Um, do you think that the um, conception of, you know, father, male, son, male, like this, is this a patriarchal overlay or a patriarchal articulation of something that's actually a non-gendered understanding? Or is mass is masculinity somehow inherent in the conception of the of God? Oh I don't think it's inherent in the conception of God. I think it's a, a metaphorical overlay. Hmm. Um, because you see the advantage we have the problem that if we're going to say God is a conscious being then the closest analogy to a conscious being is a person, a human person. Right. And, and as if we say it, then that makes God more like a brick or a table or a chair or an unconscious object. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to think of God as a conscious being involves using personal language. Then you have, because of the nature of human gender, you have to say he or she. And you can say he or she at every time, but then that gets very awkward, even in ordinary attempts right. to use non-gendered language. <laughs> in English, at least. Yeah. In English. Yeah. Some languages. But, but in, you know, it's even worse in, in the Romance language. Everything's he or she in French or Italian. Latin had a neuter gender, and so does German. But the Romance languages is le or la in French. There's no intermediate. So you could rephrase the whole thing as mother-daughter, which would be a different set of gendered metaphors. And, you know, that, that would be one way of doing it. I mean, in the Hindu goddess system, you can say that Kali is the mother of nature, for example, yeah. and nature is feminine. Yeah. So I think we're bound by metaphors. And since God is the ultimate being and transcends all dualities, then obviously God can't literally be right. male with genitalia. Um, <laughs> right. and, and so it has to be uh, uh, transcending these. I mean, it's easy to see how in a patriarchal system. If you're trying to, at least in the Christian context, the attempt is to represent the ultimate form of love through the metaphor that the most convincing metaphor of love we know, which is love for parents for children, which is a much more generous giving and unconditional love than the love of sexual lovers for each other, which is often much more conditional you know, it's condi and affected by things like jealousy. Um, Whereas the, the love of parents, the self-giving love of parents for their children, which is after all not confined to human parents and children. I mean, tigresses defend their young and mother bears defend their cubs, you know, from all comers, uh, uh, even at the expense of their own life. It's yeah. a pretty I was just asking, spread metaphor. Because, you know, some of my evangelical friends vociferously insist that the masculine pronoun for God is not, you know, a linguistic necessity, but it's fundamental. So I just wanted yes. to was one Oh, yes, but I, I mean, yeah. I just, I think that kind of fundamentalism is, is, I think it's a kind of idolatry. It takes a man-made thing, namely a sacred texture, a book written down in the human language, as the ultimate reality. And that's literally idolatry in the Judeo-Christian mm -hmm. yeah. interpretation of things. Yeah. All right. Could, could, mm -hmm. I, could I use yeah. the opportunity of love to... to 
discuss love as the fundamental currency of life. At the moment we have money and power, which seems to be very much a thing of the boys. But in our human experience, uh, the quality of our life goes up when we are in love and somehow when I've fallen out of love with my wife or children, the quality of my life just goes to pieces. And I seem to be a loving being. And the concept of love as being the fundamental currency of life rather than the money that we have today. Could I ask for comment on that? One way I think of love is it's the love is the expansion of the self to include that which had seemed other. So if I don't love you, then it seems to me that your well-being has nothing to do with my well-being. You can <coughs> suffer misfortune and I'm fine. But if it's somebody I love, that's not true. If my son suffers a misfortune, I'm not fine. His pain is my pain. His happiness is my happiness. Exactly. So this expansion of the narrow separate self, you could also say is stepping deeper and deeper and deeper into, into the truth into reality and that is or stepping deeper and deeper into who we really are because we're not actually these separate selves contained in a body or contained in a brain case you know we are um, holographic mirrors of everything uh, we are a uh, we are the totality of the relationships of this separate self so that for that self, love is simply a statement of what's true. You know, what happens to you is happening to me if I'm a holographic mirror of everything outside of myself. And the removal of that barrier, the removal of the uh, pretense or the illusion that we're separate feels that the love is that we describe the feeling of that removal or the feeling of that, of that unification as, as love. But you know, like, that said, I'm really hesitant to try to contain love within definition. And this gets at one of the unspoken programmatic assumptions of our intellectual culture, which is that the right way to apprehend and interact with reality is to first come up with a set of principles and act from those principles mirroring the axiomatic method in mathematics and in physics that you reduce reality to elements you reduce it to forces you reduce it to some basic principle even reduce it to the principle of oneness or of a trinity or of whatever and then once you've got that then you'll know how to be human one expression of that program is to start any discourse with clear and explicit definitions like let's right so i'm a bit like i think that the the attempt to define something is useful it's and it's a useful exploration but it must also be accompanied by the understanding that any definition is going to leave something out it's going to reduce it and it's going to import pre-existing prejudices about the world that 
can end up reinforcing the conclusions that you already believe. The fixing of definitions is a very powerful rhetorical device to win arguments. Because if you come up with the, if you can get your opponent to agree on the correct, on the definitions, then the conclusions are going to be inevitable. So it's, it's, there isn't this objective absolute reality that has the correct definitions out there. You know, it's, it's a relational process. Yeah. Well, I would say, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but you see, in a sense, you started from a, a, a definitional position, the, the self, the separate self reaching out in yeah. love. I would say the concept of the separate self is a definitional problem. It comes through our modern conception. I mean, traditional societies don't have the idea of a separate self. No. I mean, you are part of the social system with it. You are a member of a family, a member of a tribe. You have roles in relation to everyone else in that tribe. The idea that you're a separate, autonomous individual who decides whether you want to be part of the tribe or not, that's right. simply not, that a didn't thinkable, no. it's not a thinkable thought. Nope. Um, whereas we've grown up in this highly individualistic society that sees individuals as the center of autonomy, um, then love is constructed from individuals. You know, Hobbes in the 17th century, who saw individuals as atoms of society. Society is made up of atomic individuals. The thing, the view that led to Mrs. Thatcher's famous quotation, um, you know, there's no such thing as society, there's only individuals mm -hmm. and their families. Uh, the, that view of, of individualism, that it all comes from the individual, is what we've grown up, we've grown up with. But all traditional understandings, it's relational. And everything's relational. Everyone's defined by their relations to everything else. Right. You know, people are defined by their relations to their family. You know, their parents have obligations to children, children to parents, you know, and to the wider family and the clan. And, and the whole thing's relational. And the Trinity says, you know, basically relationality is at the very center of the divine being. It's relational. And I think that the key thing about love, though, is that... Parental love is, as I said just now, a key thing about being uh, looking after children. It's very basic. I mean, mammals do it, plants do it. Uh, they go to great lengths to protect their young, and um, even at the expense of their own life. Looking after your own family or your own children is natural and biological, and it's found everywhere in the world. And the teaching of love in the New Testament, Jesus' teaching on love, was to say, yes, of course, Everyone helps their friends and their family. That's natural human form of love that's taken for granted in every society. But um, what he was trying to do is, is say, extend this love beyond your normal group. The story of the Good Samaritan is an attempt to show how, uh, you know, here's this Good Samaritan who's not related to the injured man lying by the road who he helps and picks up and and. and takes him to an inn and looks after him and his wounds and stuff. He doesn't have any obligations to him, because he's not a Jew. Jews have obligations to Jews, but not to non-Jews on when Jesus is time. It's a tribal morality. Um, and he's trying to say that's not enough. You need to go beyond that to a much wider conception of love, um, which is much more all-embracing than our normal, natural human conceptions of love, which is we look after our own, we look after our family, we look after our kids, but we don't care about others. And when I lived in India, 
One of the things that struck me most forcefully in India was that Indians are unbelievably devoted to their families. You know, people will slave away for years to save enough money to educate their children, and for men in India to marry their daughters, they have to pay these huge diaries to marry off their daughters. It's their obligation. And most corrupt officials I knew in India were corrupt not because they were greedy and wanted this money to spend on drink and prostitutes and gambling and stuff, but because they wanted to marry their daughters off and get enough money for their diary. They were not doing it for themselves, they were doing it out of love for their family. But everybody else outside that group was completely fair game. You know, that's why Indians don't form queues, you know, if there's something that was a kind of round <laughs> elbow people out of the way, it's me first. Because they're doing it not just for me, it's I want to get these railway tickets for my family because I've got to go to you know, so my daughter's wedding or something. And, and they'll bribe people and go around the back of the ticket office and, and so on. And utterly ruthless and, and no consideration for others. And I thought at first, how can people be so rude and so inconsiderate? And this, you find outside the English speaking world a lack of respect for cues. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is, uh, you know, ba uh, and, and these are not usually bad people. The, the, the people who I thought behaved worst in India in, in relation to other people, in the context of their family, were good people. And, um, you know, even Hitler was a good person. Hitler was trying to do good for his people, the Germans. But everybody else outside that group, he did great evil to, and indeed, finally, to his own people. But from his point of view, he was not an evil person. He was trying to help his own people. So I think that the, this thing is how widely, everyone, love is natural and part of a relationship that all of us depend on. None of us would be here unless we'd had parents that were loving enough to look after us and change our nappies and feed us when we were helpless, and teachers who taught us when we knew nothing, people who taught us language. But uh, there's a certain level of relationship and love that's presupposed. It's a question of how far you take it. Rupert? Yeah? If Jesus was alive today, do you think that he would extend um, this love or um, compassion and empathy into the natural world as well? Would he be an environmentalist? Well, I think probably. I think the, the point is that in, in the time of the great religious, the founders of the world religions, you know, the Buddha and, you know, Plato and and Socrates and, and Mahavira and, and the Rishis, the Hindu Rishis, they could take for granted the natural world because it wasn't really under threat by humans. Um, and so the issue didn't really arise. Um, but I think that this, um, all of them had a great love for nature and found their inspiration in nature. I mean, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, spent 40 days on a vision quest in the wilderness after his baptism. 40 days in the wilderness, uh, which means in wild places away from human habitation, which means relating to the natural world. Traditionally, the seers of India have lived in the caves in the Himalayas. You know, they're living again in the wilderness. The Jewish prophets lived in the wilderness. In my study, I have an icon of the <coughs> prophet Elijah living in a cave in the wilderness with ravens bringing him food. Um, so, uh, the Buddha sat under, you know, was enlightened sitting under a tree, um, the Bodhi tree. Um, so, in all of these teachers, their enlightenment and their sense of a greater purpose 
came not from being in the human world, but from withdrawing from it into a greater connection with nature and then returning to the human world. And this is again a theme in shamanism. Shamans are intermediaries between the human world and non-human nature, animals and plants and the spirit world. And they enter that world and they come back to it. So I think that if, if Jesus were around today, yes, I, whether he'd join Greenpeace or not, I don't know. Um, uh, but I think that the, this, the love that um, extended to other people, um, I think would also, would, one would have to see that this was extended beyond the human realm as well. That in his time, as I say, he could take it for granted that the world's environment wasn't under threat, or at least they were not aware of the fact it was under threat from humans. The question is, why... And, and the idea that... Um, that uh, is, is it your view that up to a certain size of community, um, I can feel what you feel, but over a certain size, like a numerical size, that that becomes difficult? And if that is your view, then why uh, do you feel that? And then also, <laughs> this idea of we're all one, there's, there's no real separation. Um, that why is it, why doesn't it feel like that? Well, it's, yes. I think, you know, our natural feelings are, are bonding with communities of finite sizes. And when, when you get to huge impersonal masses of people in vast modern cities, all traditional human responses to, to local community are sort of overwhelmed by the scale. You know, there's a lot in the Old Testament. The Jewish prophets were very concerned about, and in Islam too, looking after the poor and the downtrodden, caring for widows and orphans. It comes up over and over again in the Old Testament and in the Quran. Um, we have a, and the alien among you, the strangers living among you. There's a duty of care for those who are unable to care for themselves. But then, when you get to sort of one and a half million Syrian refugees, you know, streaming into Europe, filling roads, most people in Europe say this is too much. You know, if it had been 50 Syrian refugees, they would have been welcomed. If it's one and a half million, only the Germans were prepared to do that. And, you know, even the Germans, they did it once last year, but even Angela Merkel isn't saying, you know, give us another one and a half million this year, another one and a half million next year, and then let each one of them bring five of their relatives in. And so, I mean, it's overwhelming. And I th so I think one of the problems with the, mo the modern world is that the scale is completely overwhelming for all our normal responses. And the, you know, the t caring for one good Samaritan is one thing, but... You know, uh, caring for millions of Samaritans, uh, for a Samaritan caring for millions of people who are sad, it just overwhelms us. And I think one of the problems in the modern world is an overwhelm of all our traditional responses and reactions. I don't know any solution to that. Mm -hmm. I, I see uh, religion as actually kind of one of the first attempts to grapple with the problem that you're talking about. Because in a hunter-gatherer setting, it was never, it was, it was obvious that what happens to the people around you and the natural beings around you happens to you too, because they lived in very tight-knit gift, gift economies, that, so that, if, that your misfortune 
would limit your contribution to the well-being of all or the misfortune or of something in the ecosystem. They were so close to ecology that they understood that anything that happens to any being is going to circle around and happen to themselves. So when you get into mass societies and all of the um, religions that are with us today, the, um, the institutional religions, they were born in times of the um, development of mass societies. So for the first time in the um, Middle East, in China, in India, um, you had situations where there were strangers among you, where there were people who were outside of your uh, kinship network, your clan network, all of the uh, ways that human beings had developed to take care of each other no longer applied. And you had for the first time human beings that were not in your constellation, who were an other. So the spiritual truth that what happens to you happens to me. The, the golden rule, which was originally not a rule, but a statement of truth, as you do unto others, so you do unto yourself. Um, that became no longer obvious in a society with a high degree of division of labor, large settlements, and so forth. So in order to maintain that knowledge, religions had to be created. And the scale has just grown and grown and grown. So, but nonetheless, the, the essential truth that the pain of another is your pain, the well-being of another is your well-being, that's still true. That's why it hurts so much to be in this world, I think. It's not like we think, the, the modern mind thinks that, yeah, you know, what's happening in Syria, that doesn't have to be happening to me. If I build a big enough wall a strong enough surveillance system, and I can keep the misery out of my sphere to prevent it from affecting me. There's crime out there, but I can have a security system that keeps the crime out. There's uh, ecological destruction going on out there, uh, poisoning of watersheds, but I can source my food from somewhere that's still pristine and I'll be fine. Like this idea that I can maintain a separation between me and some piece of reality, that's not the truth. In fact, the, the suffering comes back. It finds a way under the fortress wall. So in America, for example, we've pretty much kept violence, uh, invasion, away. Uh, but we perpetrate it everywhere else. We bomb and drone and, and do all kinds of stuff all over the place. And they're not striking back at us, for, aside from a very few terrorist incidents, right? They're not striking back, so we're safe, right? Well, what about domestic violence? What about suicide? I mean, America is the capital of domestic violence. One in three households has domestic violence. So it's a way of, uh, it's a mirror of, of what's happening outside. So really, you could say that the, the, the spiritual teachings, the teachings of oneness, are an answer to why does it still hurt so much? They're a removing of uh, illusory divisions. The only thing that happens when you put up the walls of illusion is that you just no longer know why you're hurting so much. And then you come across something that just gets under your skin. Uh, and it could be the Syrian refugee three-year-old child washing up on the beach, you know, or it could be a photograph of a, of a seabird whose, whose stomach is full of plastic. 
uh, or um, you know, a bleached coral reef or uh, an elephant bleeding to death after its tusks were removed. And it really hurts. Why does that hurt so much? It's because it's happening to you. It really is. There's a piece of you that is that elephant, that mirrors that elephant. How do we translate that, though, into, into systems, into institutions, into, into economics? Like that is an unanswered question. And I think really perhaps what the social, cultural, political, economic revolution is, is to bring that spiritual understanding into the way that we live on this planet, to bring economics into alignment with ecology, for example to bring money into alignment with, with social justice. We don't know how to do this. We knew how to do it on the level of Dunbar's number or whatever, you know, which I think is actually lower than the actual number. We, but, you know, in a tribal setting, like 500 people was the most that ever gathered all at once. We knew how to do it then. We don't know how to do it now. But we're looking for a way. I think partly it depends on the biggest possible overview of where we are. And, you see, I think that... There's a major difference here between Oriental religions and Western religions. That in the Hindu and Buddhist cosmologies, um, suffering is the starting point. The world's full of suffering. You know, it's just endless karmic re rebirths of suffering bound in the chains of karma. I mean, that's the basic Hindu view. And that the universe starts off with a golden age and gradually things degenerate, and we're now in Kali Yuga, the last of the four ages before the world is dissolved, and then recreated, fresh, glistening and new, with a new golden age. But things are heading for destruction. The world's full of suffering. And for the Buddha, that's the starting point, suffering. You know, old age, sickness and death are facts about the world, that life, not just human life, animal life, that we live in a world of science. That's their starting point. So what do you do about it? Uh, you can't save the cosmos. It's headed for destruction. What you can do is save yourself by undergoing kind of vertical takeoff through meditation or spiritual practice so that you free yourselves from the realms of reincarnation and escape into nirvana or Brahman or something. But it's not your concern, the, the suffering of the world. Whereas in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition, there's a sense that the spiritual path links us to each other and nature, that there's a something in, in the general, the, the coming, in the Christian version, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, in the Jewish version, the Messiah will bring peace and justice to the world. In the Marxist transform of the Judeo-Christian vision, it's the revolution which will bring away, bring, uh, overcome alienation, end in the withering away of the state, and humanity living in peace, equality, and prosperity. That's their vision. A, a transformation of history, an end of ordinary history, and a transformative millennial transformation of, of the world. Very different from the, from the Eastern ones, where history and the ecology, it's all getting worse, and there's nothing we can so do about the, the, it. The Buddhist teachers that I'm in conversation with would say that that is a distortion of the true teaching. And they would point to the Bodhisattva path, which says that Nirvana actually can't be lasting if there are other sentient beings who are not in Nirvana. Therefore, the yes. Bodhisattva comes back into samsara, not as an act of self-sacrifice, 
but because he or she realizes that you cannot actually abide in nirvana when other beings are not, because other beings are not separate from you. Well, so, that would be the Mahayana Northern Buddhist right. thing. The Southern Buddhist thing is much more the vertical takeoff, and they claim to be closer to the original teachings of the Buddha. Well, I mean, I don't know whether they are or not, but anyway, the, the Tibetan one with the Bodhisattvas and the coming back is, is indeed, as you say, a, a way of concerning yourself with all sentient beings coming back so until all are liberated. That's closer to the Judeo-Christian sort of mm -hmm. view that we're involved in an amelioration of history or we have a role to play. And um, the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview has something that corresponds to the vertical takeoff, which is the salvation of the separate soul, right? Yes. And all you have to do is get saved yourself, and then, you know, who cares about the rest of the world? They can all go to hell, literally. <laughs> but as long as you're saved, you're fine. So, so well, it's interesting that that particular view, this highly individualist form of Christianity, was a product of the Protestant Reformation. Um, you know, the traditional Catholic and Orthodox view is much more collective. You know, mm -hmm. the monasteries and the whole state, everyone's bound together. In, in a coherent state. Um, the Protestant Reformation, which laid the grounds really for the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution and so on, becomes much more individualist. You're mm -hmm. saved individually and you make that personal decision uh, to become saved. And there's much, much less of that in, in Orthodox and yeah. Catholic Christianity. And the more Protestant it is, the more individualist it gets. I wonder if there's something similar going on with Eastern religion. Yes, well, I mean, there's a move. The Hindu reform movements in the late 19th century uh, were an attempt to create something much more like a Judeo-Christian view of making the world better. The Ramakrishna mission was an attempt to do that. Sri Aurobindo, um, in his vision, tried to adopt a kind of evolutionary view of humanity ascending through spiritual revelations until the whole world is transformed, including human bodies and nature. So, under the influence of, of Western missionaries and progressivist thought and Western education, many people in the Hindu world in the last 150 years have responded by coming up with these more progressivist evolutionary visions. And it, they've sort of interacted with the West, and, and that's the way in which they've, they've seen their whole tradition evolving. But I was wondering if, if the more individualistic conception of enlightenment <coughs> corresponded to other trends of individualism or separation uh, in those societies. Well, it corresponds to separation because the, you know, the Hindu view of the four ashramas, the, the four stages of life, you start as a student. Um, you do what you're told, you learn, etc. Then you become a householder, you raise your kids, you work hard to support your family, you look after your household, you have all the responsibilities. Then when your kids have left home and you've got your daughters married off and so on, mm -hmm. uh, then you become a vanaprastha, a forest hermit. And you go withdraw into the forest, study the holy scriptures, and finally you renounce all that. You take sannyas and become a wandering sannyasin. In the, in the orange robes. And the, the ceremony of sannyas, uh, which in, 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 you know, the holy wandering holy men do it earlier. The traditional Hindu thing is everyone can do it, but at the end of their life. But sannyasins, the wandering sadhus, have done it earlier. 
The ceremony of sannyas is like a funeral. It's a funeral ceremony. You give away all your goods. You change your name. You say goodbye to your family. It's as if the whole of your past is burned away. And then you set off as a new individual in your orange robes with no abiding home, no fixed abode. You can't stay any longer than three days in one place. And you spend your days wandering with no possessions. And so there's a sense in which they are individuals at that stage. Yeah. They have teachers in their lineages, but they have actually consciously and ceremonially separated from mm-hmm. family and society. Yeah. Maybe we should ask, see if anyone else wants to uh, contribute a question or a comment. Mm. My, uh, some of my understanding from, from ancient wisdom, like for the turning of the age, is they suggest it's the end of a 26,000 year cycle. It's going into a pause, what the Indians call the pause of breath of God. And then there's a sort of exhale of 26,000 years. And this current, I think currently where they say we are is that we're at the end of the, the last 26,000 year cycle, um, cycle of separation and feeding individuals and so on, moving hopefully into the age of unity and remembering that we're one. Um, and I think that, my understanding anyway, is that at this pause, the veil is very thin. And so this, it's, it's a lot easier to manifest all this, which is perhaps one reason why we're getting all this black and white, almost comical, you know, good and bad um, sort of occurrences where we have to make the decisions of how we go into the transition to the new age. I think we're getting to the, you know, we'll go into the new age, but how we get there is probably a matter of individual as well as mass kind of consciousness waking up. So which may explain why, uh, you know, art is ugly now because it's the pursuit of money, you know, because we're feeling separate, we need the we need to feel we have enough for ourselves, and therefore we've forgotten that money is an energy, and it's the pursuit of money per se. I'd just make a short comment about the, the, the Hindu view of kopas or ages is, you know, some are shortish ones, like thousands of years, but some of them are millions of years. You know, they have these big cycles, mahakopas, which are hundreds of millions of years. And um, that, if you want to take that view, then, you know, we're an awfully long way off. We're still in the, you know, the, the Kali Yuga could last thousands and thousands of years. Um, so it slightly depends on which of those cosmic cycles one takes into account. I mean, some people took the Mayan cosmic cycle as being an important one where it came to an end in 2012 and would be a whole new, a whole calendrical system or age beginning. So I think it partly depends on which model you take as to how you see what's happening now. Um, but it's certainly true there's all these unprecedented conflicts and problems and none of the visions of change that I know of are ones that suggest that it's all going to happen through moderate reasonable reform (laughs) Um, the people are going to just meet in committees and say well let's just deal with this in a nice rational way I can relate this to politics so I think it's it's, um, a bit dangerous to try to translate these teachings of various ages into linear calendrical time. Um, they have, but they nonetheless have a certain psychic truth to them that basically says that something that's been normal and real and uh, dependable for a very, very, very long time is changing now. That's, I think, unarguably true at the point in time. 
that we are at. And so when something reaches its final stages, one thing that happens is that it takes on extreme, even ridiculous forms, uh, kind of the fulfillment of every possible permutation of that state. I write, therefore, Donald Trump, <laughs> which who I think I have this feeling that he'll be elected. Um, and the reason has to do with dramatic aesthetics. Yeah. You know, like what more perfect last chapter to yeah. the story of America, land of the free and home of the brave, than Donald Trump. You know, which is just like, you know, it's just, it, it's almost too perfect. You know? So, I mean, I don't know if he'll actually be elected, but even, even the fact that he's a candidate um, and, you know, it just feels like there's, to me, that there's some kind of drama being enacted that needs to be fulfilled. So, and that's not the only thing that, that is taking on an absurd extreme in the current age. You know, I made a list of these things once. One of them was prison inmates in China working 12 hours a day to by um, playing uh, online video games 12 hours a day to build up characters with experience points and levels that were very high so that they could be sold to teenagers in America and Japan. Yeah, just like these, these like grotesque extremes that kind of, they're, they're not you know, some kind of separate phenomena. They are distillations of our whole society. So that, that for me, that those, those are a sign that, yeah, there is a turning of the age that is imminent. Yeah, and who knows, like there were probably people, you know, raving street lunatics in AD 100 proclaiming the fall of the Roman Empire is imminent. And then in, you know, AD 200, and then, but one day one of them was right, you know? <laughs> like the Visigoths actually did come and sack Rome one day, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, we, we tend to think, and you've talked a lot about the, sort of the separation and distinction between science and spirituality, as if they're two sort of almost directly opposing forces, and yet you guys seem to embody the two in many ways. Do you see a, a, a role for science in the future and a sort of merging of science and spirituality, or is that, is that, a, is that happening? Is it, we've all read about it in, from Fritjof Capra sort of onwards, I guess, but is there a role, particularly in quantum physics and particle physics and the way that we're starting to understand that, for science to, and, and spirituality to, to, to come closer together, or are they always going to be very necessary opposing forces in the way that they're defined in our lives? Well, my own take would be that the, they can come much closer together. I mean, there's no necessary um, conflict. I mean, in, in China, which developed very advanced sciences of magnetism and seismology and, and so on, I mean, in Joseph Needham's books on the history of science and civilization of China, it's clear that the Chinese were way ahead of Europe until, you know, the 15th or 16th century in so many ways, um, in practical sciences. And those tied in with their Taoist philosophy. I mean, they didn't see a conflict between those sciences and their Taoist views, their religious views or their Buddhist views. Or, 
um, or their Confucian views. In the Middle Ages, uh, there were quite considerable intellectual advances in various areas of mathematics and so forth. And there was no sense of a conflict between science and spirituality in Europe. Um, even after the 17th century, there was an attempt to keep the conflict at bay by having these two separate compartments, the dualism of matter and spirit. When scientists dealt with matter, priests and religion dealt with spirit. But they thought these were two realities. They didn't say one's right, the other's wrong. They thought they had different, different domains that they thought complemented each other. I think they were wrong, but they, but they thought that. And I, I myself think that what creates this division at the moment is the fact that since the 19th century, the sciences have been captured by the philosophy of atheistic materialism, uh, which says the only reality is unconscious matter. There's no such thing as the spiritual realm. The only conscious thing in the universe is activity inside human brains while they're alive, and um, maybe brains of higher animals as well, but the rest of the universe is utterly unconscious. And that standard materialist view is against all forms of um, religion, all forms of spirituality, except for forms of spirituality that can be seen as involving changes inside the brain, like psychedelics or meditation. Um, those are acceptable insofar as they're kept inside the head mm. or the body in general. But if we, uh, as the sciences, as we were discussing earlier, this is a good point to end really, because we're coming back to our starting point, that the broadening of the view of matter to a kind of panpsychist view where there's some kind of mind, psyche or consciousness involved even in electrons and then in the sun and in galaxies and so forth. If we have a universe where consciousness or mind is much more widespread than just inside brains, instead of our present cerebrocentric view of consciousness. We have a much broader view. It doesn't necessarily commit the sciences to any particular spiritual tradition, but all spiritual traditions, all the great religions, have taken the view that there's consciousness beyond and within and beyond the natural world. And if we have a view that, of that, then I don't see any conflict between them. I'll just add to that um, before we wrap up here. If you, by your question, if you mean science to be what uh, Rupert was talking about, this, this, the science as, it, as it has been captured by a certain very narrow kind of atheistic materialism, then yeah, science and spirituality are necessarily separate. But when we expand science, then, I mean, it's just one reality you know, that, we're, that we're investigating. But there's something else, too. One way that I conceive of science is that it's the study of the measurable, which is, as I said before, uh, a very primal kind of reductionism because, the, because it means reducing things to number, to measurement, to quantity. And certainly the reduction of the world to number, whether it's the, in economics, you know, value, or the kind of dispiriting of the world by reducing nature to a series of, of molecular interactions, you know, that certainly has caused a lot of damage. But that doesn't mean that it has no place among the modes of human inquiry or the modes of human creativity in the world. It has its place. What's happened, I think, is that the study of the measurable and the technologies based on that 
have, have exceeded their proper bounds and usurped the functions of other ways of relating to the world. So to me, that's an open question. Like, what is the proper domain of the reductionistic <laughs> approach? What is the proper do domain of the measurable? And so we might see if we if we say, yeah, we're going to we're going to understand science as a study of the measurable of the human dance with the quantifiable, then in that sense, science will have a domain that is separate from the spiritual in the sense of the spiritual as being like the beauty we were talking about, the things that that when you try to measure them, you destroy them, or you cannot fully capture them. So I, I guess maybe we can end. I'll say it's an open question for me. One more thing about yeah. that, though. You see, I think this attempt to make the measurable uh, the basis of all science doesn't work even within science itself. What it is really is a form of physics imperialism. Uh, because physics, you know, most scientists suffer from, suffer from physics envy. And uh, <laughs> physics is the most precise and quantitative, and that's taken as the measure of all science. But actually, even when you get to chemistry, it's not really about quantitative thing. If you go look at a molecular biology paper in Nature or something, there's this, they've worked out the structure of a protein molecule. The, the answer isn't figures. They use figures to get there. It's a diagram, it's a form. Molecules are forms. And to understand a molecule, you have to look at a molecular model, uh, you know, ball and stick models or other models, mm -hmm. because that's the nature of the molecule. The, all that number crunching ends up with the final product, not a number, but a form. But it's still an abstraction, right? It's well, a representational It's form. a representation, but you see, when you get to biology, say you're classifying plants, um, then the ultimate way you classify them is morphologically. You don't quantify a dandelion or a buttercup and say this, this is the number. You actually, at Kew Gardens, the ultimate in scientific classification, there's a herbarium where you have mm -hmm. type specimens. You compare the form of what you're classifying with that form. Now, there is true that at Kew and elsewhere they're trying to reduce taxonomy to DNA sequencing. Yes. But in the end, you have to correlate the DNA sequencing with a recognizable form. So the point is, a lot of biology has never been reduced to numbers. Mm -hmm. Taxonomy is still done by people actually looking at plants and animals and classifying on the basis of form. And so, and morphology and embryology, uh, the attempt to reduce it to dynamics of molecular biological reaction rates completely fails because you can't explain form in terms of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so actually there's huge tracts of science which have never been reduced to numbers and are irreducible to numbers. Um, and I think one of the things that going beyond this reduction to numbers approach would be is to recognize that large bits of science have never fitted that model mm -hmm. and still don't mm -hmm. and liberate them from attempting to do it. Because you see most biologists think they've got to reduce life to molecular biology and then they've got to reduce that to reaction rates and numbers. Right. And they're not understanding the forms and embryos and developmental biology as a result of doing it. So then the question would be, what's the right relationship between the reductionistic method and the whole understanding of life or of mm -hmm. chemistry? Well, exactly. And I think this is a debate which would be an internal debate within the sciences. In fact, it's already going on. I mean, people who are interested in morphology and developmental biology um, 
recognize that form is a, is, a, is a key part of nature. You see, in a sense, the conflict goes back to Pythagoras and Plato, because Pythagoras thought that the ultimate reality is mathematical, including geometrical. Mm. Yeah. Um, that mass, that the whole world is a reflection of some eternal mathematical set of truths. Whereas Plato generalized that. He was impressed by what Pythagoras said. But he said, no, it's not just that, because it's a realm of forms or ideas, which include numbers, but are not all reducible to numbers. Mm -hmm. And if everything had been reducible to numbers and, and mathematics, there wouldn't have been any need for Plato. Mm -hmm. And Plato is a much more profound and important philosopher. Well, he's influenced by Pythagoras, but it includes yes. that realm. And so, you know, Whitehead said the whole of Western philosophy is a set of footnotes to Plato. Um, there's a sense in which this discussion now yeah. is number enough, or do you have to include form as well, form and structure and pattern and meaning and connection, um, logos, and so on, mm -hmm. then I think you do. But I, 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 And as I say, I think this is something that the sciences already in practice recognize. Because if you're classifying a plant, number helps you not at all. You have to look at the specimens, you have to know what's there. You have to go to queue and look at the type specimens still. And in this new view that we're both advocating, there'd be nothing wrong with that. Instead of thinking it's inadequate, right. and we haven't yet got to the stage where right. we can be like physicists, give up this inferiority complex, throw off the yoke of physics imperialism. Right. And uh, it would be very liberating for many of the sciences. Right. Of course, fascinatingly, even in physics, the reductionist program is showing signs of breaking down. Yes, because yeah. physics is in, in the end a platonic or Pythagorean enterprise where the ultimate reality is not particles of matter, but equations which give rise to the entire universe. It's a kind of top-down holism. Yeah. The superstring theory is an attempt to generate the universe from a set of equations that deal with 10 dimensions or 11 dimensions that, that somehow generate a universe by a kind of folding in of themselves. It's a bit like Plotinus and the world soul giving rise to all things in nature by mm -hmm. involution or folding in. That's what they're trying to do in superstring theory. It's definitely top-down, not bottom-up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think we won't, we won't try to unpack that one right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you all for your attention and your participation and your listening. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site, none of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, you can also subscribe for free Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.